0: Due to the nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and gun violence. Consider this when deciding how and when you'll listen.
1: You're probably aware of the phrase, an eye for an eye and the whole world goes blind. It refers to the never ending cycle of violence. One party strikes, the other retaliates. And on and on and on. But the wheel is difficult to stop because someone will always crave the last word.
0: On January 25, 1993, Mir Emil Konzi went on a vicious shooting spree outside the CIA's headquarters in Langley, Virginia to take his revenge on the West. In just minutes, his rampage killed two, Lansing Bennett and Frank Darling, and wounded three others. Afterward, Kanzi fled overseas, and FBI agents followed his trail to Pakistan. Searching for one man in a nation of 135 million would be like looking for a needle in a haystack, but the victims' families refused to let Khanzi's assault go unpunished. They desperately wanted retribution of their own.
1: But let's return to the question we asked in part one, Because as satisfying as it would be to get justice for the victims, it does make you wonder, how do you get justice without restarting the cycle of revenge? Hi, I'm Greg Polson. This is Serial Killers, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Monday and Thursday, we dive into the minds and madness of serial killers, and today we're returning to our special series about the most dangerous and heart-pounding manhunts in history. We'll learn the top-secret methods used to track down fugitives, and the techniques they use to stay one step ahead. This episode concludes the global manhunt for the 1993 CIA shooter, Mir A. Malkansi, and this special series for now. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa
0: Richardson. Hi, everyone. You can find episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify.
1: Last time, we followed Kanzi as he shot six people outside the CIA headquarters, killing two. He skipped town to Pakistan soon afterward, but left plenty of clues behind.
0: This time, we'll follow FBI agent Brad Garrett as he hunts the elusive terrorist in the remote cities of Pakistan. We'll also watch the surprising way the family members of Kanzi's victims turn the tide against him.
1: We've got all that and more coming up. Stay with us.
0: This episode is brought to you by Accounting Plus. We've heard about career killers, but how about a killer career? Accounting has got it all. You'll have flexibility, great pay, and the kind of lifestyle you've always dreamed of. If that's not enough, you'll have the opportunity to make a difference by using your detective skills to investigate financial mysteries. Want in? Accounting Plus provides free resources that'll help guide you to a successful career in accounting and personal freedom. Do more. Live more. Visit joinaccountingplus.com. By
1: the spring of 1993, CIA shooter Mirame al had fled to Quetta, Pakistan, his hometown. He knew the Americans would come knocking soon, but he wasn't worried. He felt pretty good on the run, relaxed now that he'd completed his goal. Not even seeing his victims' names in the papers gave him any pause. He stayed with his brothers, surprising them with his visit. He hadn't seen them in many years, not since Khansi moved to the U.S. Likely, they had no idea what Kanzi had done back in Virginia, and Kanzi didn't tell them. At his brother's home, he could sleep in peace. What Kanzi didn't know was that he really wasn't that safe. Across the world, a manhunt was beginning.
0: FBI agent Brad Garrett had a big job to do. The victim's families and the entire U.S. government was counting on him. Not only that, but the Bureau and the CIA had always been rivals. Catching the agency's most wanted criminal could ease the tension. Though Brad was a hard-working agent, he usually handled narcotics cases and robberies. His counterterrorism experience was basically zilch. Still, he was confident he could bring the shooter to justice. Years after the manhunt, Brad told Washingtonian magazine, I was trying to solve the double homicide. Call it what you want, call it terrorism, call it political, it was still a homicide. But while that might have been true, once the suspect, Mir Amal Khanzi escaped to Pakistan, the case was a bit more complicated than your average murder.
1: For one, Brad had no jurisdiction in a foreign country, so he'd have to coordinate with Pakistani law enforcement. From his point of view, that would be tough. He believed the authorities were corrupt, poorly paid and often more beholden to local politics than national law. Without the right connections, you were out of luck."
0: And connections were the one thing Kanzi had going for him. In his hometown of Quetta, near the border of Afghanistan, his family supposedly owned an entire city block, two hotels, and a handful of orchards. Kanzi had plenty of places to hide. He was also part of the Pashtun tribe, which adhered to a strict code of honor. For them, loyalty was paramount. Rather than punishing one of their own, they'd be much more likely to protect him. And if all else failed, it was pretty easy for Kanzi to cross the border to neighboring Afghanistan, which would be a nightmare for the FBI, based on the political tensions at the time. It looked like the Bureau would face roadblocks every step of the way. Still, they had to start somewhere.
1: The FBI distributed thousands of bright red matchbooks with Kanzi's face and the word REWARD written in all caps. They also set up a tip line, hoping to generate some leads. The number? one 800 heroes one While they waited for a bite there, they coordinated with the existing network of Afghan informants and Pakistani spies the U.S. had cultivated since the Soviet-Afghan War. Combined with the publicity campaign, they hoped to quickly zero in on their man. But Brad wasn't happy to sit around and twiddle his thumbs. He had training to do.
0: Even if the Bureau got a solid lead and were able to track down the suspect, Kanzi might not look like the photo they had on file. It might be difficult to identify him at first glance. The only way to really be sure once they had him in custody would be to compare his fingerprint to the one found at the crime scene. So Brad met with some experts to get a crash course in the subject. Years earlier, when moving to the U.S., Kanzi submitted 10 fingerprints to the Immigration and Naturalization Service. Brad studied each of the distinct grooves on them. He needed to be able to recognize the unique lines and ridges with his naked eye. He also learned how to take a fingerprint in the field from a suspect who was subdued and didn't want to cooperate. All this prep meant Agent Garrett would be ready when the Bureau finally picked up a lead and luckily, he didn't have to wait too long.
1: The Pakistani informants came through with a tip. Kanzi was at his brother's house in Quetta. The FBI sent the info to Pakistani authorities. It's unclear how they were able to get them on board, considering the reasons we outlined earlier. But now that the shootings were dominating international news, they probably didn't want to seem like they were harboring a known terrorist. The raid was a go. Pakistani intelligence officers searched through the doors of a large Quetta home. The Khansis were an upper-class family who may have had no idea Khansi had done something wrong. So they were offended by the soldiers streaming through their house, scuffing their floors. The officers turned the place upside down, searching for Khansi. But in the end, they came up empty. The suspect was nowhere to be found.
0: It was a disappointing setback, but FBI officials weren't going to let it stall their investigation. They flew all the way across the globe to demand answers from the Kanzis in person. A few of his brothers told them that Kanzi dropped by soon after arriving in Pakistan, but he only stayed with them for a few nights. After that, he took off, and the brothers had no idea where he'd disappeared to.
1: But Brad and the other agents grimaced they already had a hunch where Kanzi might have gone next. The town of Quetta is some 60 miles from the Pakistani-Afghan border. Agents worried that if Kanzi made it across to Afghanistan, he might have an even better hiding spot. According to Brad, at that point in time, it really had no central government that had control of Afghanistan. So it's like, who do you even go to to ask permission?
0: In Pakistan, the US was able to get some help from the local authorities, But in Afghanistan, unless they wanted to cooperate with the new Taliban rule, they'd have to do it all on their own.
1: Coming up, the FBI gets help from an unlikely ally.
0: This episode is brought to you by Accounting Plus. We've heard about career killers, but how about a killer career? accounting has got it all. You'll have flexibility, great pay, and the kind of lifestyle you've always dreamed of. If that's not enough, you'll have the opportunity to make a difference by using your detective skills to investigate financial mysteries. Want in? Accounting Plus provides free resources that'll help guide you to a successful career in accounting and personal freedom. Do more. Live more. Visit joinaccountingplus.com. And now, back to the story. In
1: 1993, the FBI followed Mir Amil Khanzi to Pakistan, hoping to bring him to justice for going on a shooting spree outside the CIA's headquarters. But after a botched raid on Khanzi's family home, agents were empty-handed.
0: They were too late. Khanzi had likely fled to Afghanistan, Once again, the Bureau's job had become a lot more complicated. It seemed like it would take the FBI's full focus to capture the terrorist, but soon they had their hands full with another deadly assault.
1: Almost one month exactly after the CIA shootings on February 26, 1993, a bomb blew up in the parking garage under the World Trade Center. The explosion created a gigantic crater 100 feet around and several stories deep. Arms and legs were crushed under the rubble. Thousands were injured, and six people were killed almost instantly.
0: This was nearly eight years before 9-11, but it just goes to show that an act of violence is neither the beginning or the end. It's ongoing.
1: And after the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, the federal government had a new terrorist to track down one bigger and potentially more dangerous than rogue shooter Kanzi.
0: So between the hunt for the World Trade Center bomber and the extra challenges of Afghanistan, the manhunt for Kanzi started to stall. Brad Garrett and his team were at a loss. After a year of dead ends, the leads all dried up. There was nothing to pursue. And while the CIA ideally wanted Kanzi in handcuffs, the more time that passed, the less it seemed to matter. It was like the world had forgotten and that everyone had moved on.
1: Everyone except for one woman.
0: Soon after the day Kanzi murdered Frank Darling in cold blood, his wife Judy quit working at the CIA. After 13 years of service, she had to move back home to Pittsburgh to recover. The attack left her diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder she didn't drive for months, and when she finally did, she wouldn't pull up next to a car at a red light in case it triggered memories of the shooting. All she wanted to do was move on. So when the agency offered her another job, she said, quote, "'Not there. I'll never go back there.'" But she never forgot about Frank. The same flag the CIA flew at half-mast after the attack was mounted in her home in a triangle frame. During the shooting, Frank had yelled for Judy to get down, saving her life, but sacrificing his. She was determined that he wouldn't die in vain. But besides heading into Pakistan herself, there wasn't much she could do. So she became an activist. To her, there was only one way to keep a vendetta from turning into a murder.
1: In August, just over six months after the attack, Judy spoke at a congressional hearing on assault weapons. She held up a picture of her husband and lawmakers and said, quote, "...I am not an expert on gun laws, but I am an expert on what guns can do and the devastation they can cause. In a matter of seconds, my life went from heaven to the depths of hell." End quote. She also went to D.C. for the silent march on Washington, bringing along Frank size 13 running shoes. She placed them at the steps of the Capitol, next to 38,000 pairs belonging to other victims of gun violence.
0: But still, losing a loved one is about as painful as it gets. On the anniversary of the shooting, Judy attended a private memorial service held at the Langley intersection where Conzie murdered Frank. Her wedding ring dangled at the end of a necklace. Two crosses, one for her husband and one for the other victim, rose from wooden flower boxes. A dark plaque read, honor, sympathy, and tears for those who will not be forgotten. And after a year and a half, forgotten is exactly how Judy felt. She couldn't believe her husband's killer was still at large. But when Judy pressed the CIA about the stalled manhunt, she was met with resistance and even criticized for speaking up. Her faith in the agency was shaken to the core. As she talked to the news, her eyes filled with tears. She said, I often wonder if they've ever really tried to find Conzi. I can't let go of this until they do. I live it every single day. For two years, I've tried to get answers and the CIA keeps sweeping it under the rug as though it never happened. The agency is a family, they say, and we look out for each other. But what have they done for me?
1: Judy was a former logistics officer, yet she felt like she was being treated like some bitter widow. If she wanted to bring Conzi to justice, she was going to have to take matters into her own hands.
0: In January 1995, two years after the shooting, she met up with her senator, Arlen Specter, to plead for action. Specter was also the chairman of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence, which oversaw the CIA. He'd likely already knew about Kanzi, but when he heard Judy's plea, he was especially moved. He wrote a letter to President Bill Clinton, urging him to declare Kanzi an international terrorist and asking for an increase in the reward money. $100,000 wasn't getting them anywhere.
1: Meanwhile, Judy and other family members of the victims spearheaded a long lobbying effort to get the government to step up. And she seemed to make some headway Soon enough, the FBI and State Department geared up for a massive publicity campaign inside Pakistan. Instead of just matchbooks, they planned to put up wanted posters, print pamphlets, and run ads in local papers. It was much bigger. After more than two years, Judy was itching to get justice for Frank. And finally, it looked like they were getting somewhere. That is, until the man who'd bombed the World Trade Center, Ramzi Youssef, got in the way.
0: Let me explain. Earlier, we said that the FBI fell off the Kanzi case to focus on the terrorists behind the World Trade Center bombings. Well, around the same time Judy was meeting with Senator Specter, American and Pakistani agents were going after Yusuf. They stormed through a boarding house in Islamabad, Pakistan's capital, and caught Yusuf in the raid. He was thrown onto an American aircraft and sent to the US for trial.
1: Which was exactly what Judy wanted for Kanzi. She couldn't understand why they could so easily go in and grab Yusuf, but they couldn't do the same for Kanzi.
0: What she didn't know was that the boarding house raid wasn't without consequence.
1: Radical Muslim groups believed Pakistan's prime minister had sold Yusuf out, and worse, only to gain favor with the US. They were furious. Once again, the cycle of violence began to turn. On March 8, 1995, exactly one month after Yusuf was arrested, three American diplomats were on their way to work in Karachi, Pakistan's largest city. Suddenly, a team of organized gunmen brandishing assault rifles opened fire on their embassy van. Two of the diplomats were killed, and a third was injured. While no specific group claimed responsibility again, some believed it was retaliation for Yusuf's arrest and the U.S. Embassy was spooked. So the U.S. ambassador to Pakistan cabled home with second thoughts about the campaign to get Kanzi. An FBI spokesperson even told the Washington Post, we don't want to put others in harm's way for the sake of capturing Kanzi.
0: Judy Darling's campaign for Kanzi was put on hold indefinitely. And as time passed, the U.S. lost any track of where Kanzi was.
1: But with hindsight, we know.
0: Kanzi was no longer in Quetta, he was safe and sound in Afghanistan and not at all worried about getting caught. He spent most of his time along the border, drifting from village to village, never staying in one place for long. By Kanzi's account, it was easy to get into the country at the time. Kanzi supposedly crossed back into Pakistan often to buy newspapers or see old friends. If he needed to, he flashed a false ID for border security. If that wasn't good enough, he'd hand the guard 100 rupees, about 38 cents in US dollars today, and they'd let him through. Over the course of two years, he was never interrogated, not once. At one point, he even thought the US had given up on looking for him, so he fantasized about killing more CIA officials, just to get their attention. If he could, he'd get a job in Greece, then find a way back to the States. Then? he would do it all again. And, terrifyingly, maybe he would have.
1: If it wasn't for Judy Darling. After the manhunt stalled, she flew back to DC to meet with Senator Specter again. She was livid they'd pulled the plug on the FBI and State Department campaign. With few other options, she likely knew that upping the reward money was the only real chance at getting Concie. The paltry $100,000 prize clearly wasn't enough to convince his contacts to hand him to their enemy. This time, the senator gave her a surprising assurance. The manhunt wasn't over. Kanzi was still a priority. Despite the previous attacks, the State Department made an announcement to formally designate Mir Emil Kanzi an international terrorist. They weren't going to give in to the fear of retaliation. They released a new bounty for information leading to Kanzi's arrest. $2 million.
0: For two years, they waited and waited and waited. Finally, in April 1997, an FBI agent at the U.S. Consulate Office received a call. It came from an informant they'd worked with before, a Pashtun tribesman. The man said he'd been working with Conzi for the past couple of years. Now that the reward had been increased, the reward money was too good to pass up he was prepared to hand Kanzi over.
1: The agent was a little skeptical. It sounded like it could be a setup. It was almost too good to be true. But even after those two years and a $2 million offer, it was their only lead. They had to pursue it.
0: Coming up, a high-stakes operation runs into trouble. And now, back to the story.
1: Following pressure from former CIA officer Judy Darling and the FBI, the State Department finally labeled Mir Amil Kanzi an international terrorist. In April 1997, nearly four years after the murders outside the CIA headquarters, the FBI received a credible tip with Kanzi's whereabouts. At first, the agent was dubious, but the tribesmen showed them Kanzi's recent application for a Pakistani driver's license, complete with his photo. After comparing it to the one they had on file, the FBI realized the man's story was no bluff. Thanks to Judy's persistence, Mir Aimel was now within their grasp. All they had to do now was get permission to head overseas and grab the suspect.
0: For a variety of reasons, capturing Kanzi in Afghanistan wasn't a viable option. Their best chance would be in Pakistan, where the US could count on local authorities backing them up. However, the political landscape was fraught. It's a little complicated, but remember, the last time the U.S. tried this, they only did so with the previous Pakistani Prime Minister's permission. To get it again, even after so much backlash, couldn't be done by Brad alone. Luckily, a high-profile figure intervened, possibly one of the only people charismatic enough to get the job done, the President of the United States.
1: Around June, Bill Clinton called Pakistan's government and asked that Prime Minister Nawaz Sharif allow U.S. agents to seize Kansi. While we don't know the exact nature of the conversation, it's possible Clinton dangled a favor in return. One official noted, quote, Undoubtedly, Pakistan is hoping for some improvement in bilateral relations as a result. Sharif was faced with an impossible choice. Allowing Americans to enter the country and apprehend Kansi would anger domestic extremists. But on the other hand, he wasn't in the position to ruffle the feathers of a U.S. president. In the end, Sharif agreed. The mission was on.
0: Only this time, it wouldn't be just Brad. The operation was high priority, delicate, and potentially lethal. It would take a whole team to take down Conzi. Agent Jimmy Carter, second in command at the FBI's Washington Metropolitan Field Office, was on the job as well. Before he left, his superior said, quote, I don't know where this is going to take you or how long it's going to take you. You'd better say your goodbyes. If it doesn't feel right, pull out. There's always another day. With that, Agent Carter, Agent Garrett, and three others got on a plane to the remote desert town of Ghazi Khan, Pakistan. Carrying out an undercover mission in an unfamiliar environment put all of them on edge. Ghazi Khan was not like U.S. cities. It was dirt roads, tangled electrical wires overhead, dusty, smoggy air, and the constant buzz of motorbikes and rickshaws.
1: Yet they did know how to construct a mission. A team from Quantico secured a room across the street from the Shelley Mar Hotel, a seedy spot. The idea was that the Pashtun tribesmen would lure Kanzi there, possibly under the pretense of smuggling Russian goods. But the agents had no way of knowing whether their informant had followed through on his end of the bargain. They just had to follow the plan. First, the team would don shalwar kameezes, a traditional dress that would hide their weapons. They'd head to the hotel in the morning hours. Since it was so early, they hoped no one would see them creeping down the dusty road. Thankfully, the informant told them the front door of the hotel would be unlocked. The agents should have no trouble creeping right in.
0: Based on the informant's description of the interior, the team would secure the lobby first, then the stairwell. Kanzi's room was on one of the upper floors. The front agent would be asked to knock on Kanzi's door to coax him out for morning prayer. The second he opened the door, the team would strike, holding Kanzi down while Brad made the identification. Then they'd have their man in custody. Simple. But of course, the sting involved huge risks. Brad worried about shooting the suspect in a struggle and about arresting the wrong man. Kanzi had dangerous, loyal friends who'd protected him for years. Others in Pakistan called him a hero. Every member of Brad's team was risking their lives. If anything went wrong, they'd be sitting ducks.
1: On June 15th at four in the morning, Brad, Agent Carter, and the rest of the special ops team arrived in Daragazi Khan. It was still dark, and to Brad, surreal. That's because it was far from empty, as they'd planned. Instead of vacant streets, the city was packed with people, even at 4 a.m., locals starting their day before the sun came up. If it weren't for the disguises, the group of Americans would have stood out like sore thumbs if they stalked through the dusty streets, slowly making their way toward the Shelley Mar Hotel. Hopefully, no one looked at them too closely, They'd know they weren't supposed to be there. They had to stay composed, though composure was difficult in such a high-stakes operation. The team grew antsy as they neared the hotel door. In the desert dark, one agent grabbed the handle, but the door was locked, and there was a security guard inside.
0: Now, Brad and the other agents were trapped outside moment by moment the streets filled with more and more people the worst case scenario was coming true the informants information wasn't panning out worse they worried they had been set up they were exposed in the street vulnerable to being gunned down just like the consulate members in karachi
1: brad quickly assessed the situation there was no going back The only way forward was to plow ahead. He called the security guard to the door, then shoved his way into the hotel by force. There was no time for stealth. Guns out, the agent secured the lobby and hustled up the stairs toward Kanzi's room. The front agent called for morning prayer. And then, they waited. And waited until someone inside Conzi's room responded. It sounded like a man groggy from being woken up by the call to prayer. The team didn't waste any time. As soon as the door cracked open, Brad and the team rushed in. The agents pounced on the man, pitting him to the floor. When he screamed, they gagged him so he wouldn't wake the other guests. The struggle was quick and violent, but it only took seconds for the team to bring the suspect into custody. Brad looked him over. The man swore at the agents, though he wouldn't speak English or identify himself. Up close, he didn't really look like the right guy. In every photo they'd seen, Konzi was clean-shaven. But this suspect had a beard. For a moment, Brad had a very important question. Was this even the right guy? Because so far, the informant had been wrong about several things. It's possible the squad was arresting an innocent man. There was only one way to know for sure.
0: Brad ordered the agents to turn him over. He whipped out a magnifying glass, grabbed the suspect's thumb, and pressed it into a flip-open ink pad. Identifying fingerprints accurately with only a magnifying glass is no easy task. With the naked eye, they're hard to tell apart. So according to the National Forensic Science Technology Center, Analysts look for three known shapes called ridge patterns on the pad of the finger, loops, whorls, and arches.
1: Brad peered into the magnifying glass, examining each of these in turn. He looked at the ridge characteristics of the fresh print, then compared them to the sample on file. With Conzi still fighting the agents, Brad zeroed in on the snaking spirals, the curving loops, and the waves of the black lines. Finally, he nodded, looked up at his team, and said the three magic words.
0: We got him.
1: It was enough for Kanzi to stop fighting. The manhunt was over.
0: After a brief stay in a holding facility, the whole team with Kanzi boarded a military aircraft painted in camo with an American flag on the tail. The flight was refueled mid-air, so Kanzi couldn't ask for asylum while touching down in another country.
1: Yet, despite the situation, Kanzi was a man with no regrets. During the 21-hour flight, he openly confessed to the shooting. They wouldn't have any issues charging him.
0: So back at Langley's CIA headquarters, agents rejoiced. The terrorist that had turned their safe haven into a danger zone was finally captured. According to one CIA official, there wasn't a dry eye in the place.
1: And once the FBI landed, fugitive in hand, the agents visited the building for themselves. There, they were given an unusual reception from their rivals, a standing ovation.
0: But none of that compared to the relief that flowed through Judy Darling when she heard the news. Now she thought there could be closure. There would be justice for Frank. Seven months later, at Kanzi's sentencing hearing, Judy held back her tears. On the stand, Kanzi was poised. He said, quote, I don't feel proud for it. This is the result of the wrong policy toward Islamic countries. I don't expect any justice or mercy from this country or court. The jury was only too happy to prove him right. They sentenced Kanzi to death.
1: Over the next few years, Brad visited Kanzi in prison several times to glean intelligence about Pakistan. In time, the two parties developed a sort of respect for each other. Brad once even gave Kanzi money for toiletries, and Khansi, on death row, paid him back. Then Khansi asked Brad to attend his execution. And when the time came, Brad stayed true to his word. In November 2002, Brad stood next to Kanzi as he was killed by the state the FBI agent must have had mixed feelings. In an interview, he hinted that even though he got his man, it was tough to chase someone, capture them, and then watch them die. Later, he told the Washingtonian he wouldn't recommend anyone attend an execution.
0: We all know the saying, revenge is sweet, but like we heard earlier, in real life, the aftertaste can be bitter, and there are always consequences.
1: Just 28 hours after a jury charged Kanzi with murder, five employees of a Texas oil company sat in a traffic jam in Karachi, Pakistan. A red car pulled up beside them and unloaded a hail of bullets into their station wagon, killing all four Americans and the driver. And this time, a group did claim responsibility for the attack. No one had heard of them before, but their name was the AML Secret Action Committee.
0: Pakistani officials believed it was in retaliation for mir a Khanzi's sentence.
1: Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers.
0: You can find all episodes of Serial Killers and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify every Monday and Thursday.
1: We'll see you next time.
0: Stay safe out there.
1: Serial Killers is a Spotify original from Parcast, executive produced by Max Cutler. Our head of programming is Julian Boireau. Our supervising sound designer is Russell Nash, with Nick Johnson as our head of production and quality control by Spencer Howard. Stacey Nemec is our supervising editor and Derek Jennings is our writing lead. This episode of Serial Killers was written by Ben Caro, edited by Tara Wells, fact-checked by Kevin Johnson, researched by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood, produced by Bruce Katovich, and sound designed by Michael Motion. Our hosts are Vanessa Richardson and me, Greg Polson.